2 Corinthians 5:11 through 6:2 Therefore knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others but what we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience we are not commending ourselves to you again but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Tate. And thank you all for being with us here at River Oaks today. We're really glad you came. Uh, just want to mention for those here who might be students but not yet involved with our youth ministry on Sunday evenings, uh, the wonderful band you heard playing up here before. Those are some of our students. And uh, uh, Brian, uh, Pastor Brian was right here in the middle, and I think you heard Corey do the call to worship. But I would encourage you guys, if you've not yet been involved in our youth ministry, to uh, try that on Sunday night. It's a, it's a fantastic group of uh, students with some great leaders. Thank you again for coming today. We are concluding today our four-week series that we've called Witnesses. We have at the Resource Center today some free booklets that kind of cover the material we've used in this, that we've gone over in this series and go into a little more depth on some points. So those are free and available if you'd like one today. Next week, we will begin a series on values uh, called We Are, biblical values that we hope will characterize our church, we aspire to having as foundational values in our church. And the study for this is uh, quite, a, quite an extensive one and a really, I think, excellent one that was written by David Holcomb with contributions of articles by some of our leaders in our church on those values. And uh, this 
a larger study than we normally have because it's kind of two parts for the winter and for the spring. These are available today at our resource center. There is a cost for these. I think they're five bucks toward the cost of uh, printing these, but want to let you know those are available. If you're going to be in a small group, you'll certainly want one, and if you're not able to be in a group, they are certainly good for individual study as well. Well, as we talk about witnesses, you'll see on the screen the definition we've been using. We've said that witnesses are empowered followers of Jesus who are sent to show and share the gospel. And the foundational verse from this is Acts 1 and verse 8, where Jesus said to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as we've noted before, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that equips and enables a person to be a witness for Jesus. It's not necessarily the extent of your knowledge of the Bible, as good as biblical knowledge is. You don't need a seminary degree. It's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life that equips you, that enables you to be a witness for Jesus. We saw further that witnesses are sent people. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself, if you're a Christian, as someone who is sent by Jesus into the world as his representative. But that is, in fact, how Jesus prays for his followers. The followers who were around him at that time, his apostles, and all those who would believe through their message. And I think that includes all of us here today who are followers of Jesus. Jesus prayed this way. Father, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Followers of Jesus are sent people. Sent to do what? Sent to show the gospel and to share the gospel. By showing the gospel, we mean we're sent to demonstrate what a life looks like that has been changed by the gospel of Jesus, by the presence of his spirit. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And then we're also sent to verbally explain the message, to share the gospel. How can anyone believe in what Jesus has done on the cross unless someone tells them, explains the message? This morning we're going to look at the motivation for being witnesses for Jesus. What is it that should compel us? drive us to go into the world as his representatives. It's not a sense of duty or a sense of guilt or obligation, but above all other things, it is love. Love for God based on a clear understanding of exactly what he has done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to look again this morning at the example of the Apostle Paul. This morning we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the passage that Tate read just a moment ago. Just a little bit of background on the book of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul, in writing this book, was writing it to not only further expound on what he had taught the church at Corinth, but also, to a, to a degree, to defend himself in the light of false teachers that had come in after he had been in Corinth to undermine his ministry and his message. And there are certain places in the book of 2 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul is pointing to the things he has suffered and explaining 
why he's done what he's done, and he makes comments, even in our passage today that read, Tate read a moment ago, he says, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Who are these people boasting about outward appearance? Commentators indicate that Paul was, the apostle, was not an outwardly impressive man. Uh, Small of stature, uh, many suggest. And perhaps these teachers coming in after Paul were just suggesting that he's a nobody. Not outwardly impressive as some of them were. And so it's against this kind of background that Paul the apostle is sometimes defending himself. In doing so, however... He gives us in this passage one of the most rich and powerful understandings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he has actually done for us in his dying on the cross in our place. One of the most rich understandings that we'll find anywhere in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, in speaking of his own ministry, notes the fact that it was the love of Christ controlling him, as he says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Some versions of the New Testament, instead of the word control, will say compel, or the love of Christ constrains us. What is it that motivates him in his ministry and should motivate us? He says it's the love of Christ And there's a reason for that. It's because he has a certain understanding of something that brings him to this this idea of being compelled with the love of Christ. It's the idea that all people have died and are separated from God. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died, therefore all have died. What does he mean by that? He's pointing to what he teaches elsewhere in the New Testament, that because of our sins, all of us, all human beings, have been separated from God. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the Garden of Eden, he gave a command. Adam, he said, you can eat of the fruit of every tree in this garden except one. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you've read the book of Genesis, you know that Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But they didn't die that day. They didn't die for many, many years. They had a number of children. But as soon as they ate the forbidden fruit, something happened. Sin entered the world. This nature of spiritual death, one of their sons killed the other, and we see sin infecting the human race so that by Genesis chapter 6 in the time of Noah, the Bible says that all the thoughts of everyone were only evil all the time. And the Apostle Paul, when he would write to the church at Ephesus, would write this way, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins of which you once walked. He'd say in verse 4 of chapter 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, that is, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have 
been saved. The reason we need the grace of God and the reason we can't work our way to God is our sin has separated us to the point that the Apostle Paul can call our condition spiritually dead, separate from God. He goes on to explain in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that Jesus died and was raised to reconcile us to God, to bring us out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. It was for our sake that he died and was raised. And he goes on to say in verse 18 of this chapter, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We were separated from God because of our sins, spiritually dead. Christ reconciled us. How? He explains in verse 21. Verse 21 is a difficult verse, I think, to understand, but perhaps one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible for comprehending what Jesus Christ did when he was crucified for us. The Apostle Paul writes it this way, For our sake, he made him, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus, the sinless one who knew no sin, on the cross, was laid upon him the iniquities of us all, as the prophet Isaiah said, all of our sin. He took the place of us sinners himself. He who knew no sin. He bore our sin upon himself. What that was like, I don't think we can comprehend. I don't think we can fully comprehend it. Jesus' suffering on the cross was far more than the experience of physical pain of crucifixion. Terrible as that would have been. When in the Garden of Gethsemane, his sweat was like great drops of blood. I don't think it was the anticipation of merely the physical pain of crucifixion. There was a degree of suffering that the Son of God who knew no sin would experience. I don't think humanly we can comprehend. Jesus took our place. He became our substitute. There was poured out on him the judgment, the righteous, holy wrath for our sin. The Son of God who knew no sin. Why? To take our place so that in Him who was credited with our sin, we might be credited with His righteousness. We, the sinful ones, could stand before the holy, awesome Creator of the universe and say, Our Father who art in heaven. We'd become the adopted ones, the ones reconciled to God, was it because of what Jesus did? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Apostle Paul is saying, because we have understood this, we've concluded this, that's why the love of Christ compels us. It's important to have a, a really rich understanding of what Jesus really did for you so that in response, your love for him will be great.
and it will compel you to go into the world as his witnesses and as his ambassadors. Paul the Apostle further explains that if a person is in Christ, that person is a new creation. From now on, he says, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we we regard him thus no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. The spiritual death taken away. The new has come. The life of God has come. The righteousness of God in Christ. And then, those who have been reconciled are entrusted with the message of reconciliation. All this is from God, the Apostle Paul writes, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, the Apostle Paul is talking about himself here, but I think we can rightly understand that all of us who've been reconciled to God through Jesus have now been given this ministry. The word ministry in the New Testament comes from the word, the same word from which we get the word deacon. It's the word diaconion. We've been given this deaconing, this service. Every one of us who knows Jesus, this ministry of reconciliation, Paul goes on to explain he's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So the ministry that all of us have, those of us who are followers of Jesus, who've been reconciled to God, we've experienced this, the ministry we have is in the form of this message of reconciliation. That's why it's important if you're a Christian, to to understand how to verbally share the message of the gospel with someone else. And Paul goes on to say then, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. Because we got this message, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. You know what an ambassador does? An ambassador goes to to another country, represent the home country. Well, Christians, followers of Jesus, are ambassadors in the world. We're citizens of heaven, but now we're sent. We're sent into the world as ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God has called every follower of Jesus to be a love-motivated, spirit-empowered witness for him. Now, what does it look like to be a love-motivated, spirit-empowered, empowered witness. How should the love of Jesus be expressed through you when you go to school tomorrow or when you go to work and you encounter people who don't believe what you believe and don't live the way you try to live your life? How should you relate to them? How should you show the love of Jesus to them? Even if they they say bad things about you, Even if they reject you, how should you relate to them? The Bible gives us some really clear guidance on that. I want to look at two passages. The first comes from the book of 2 Timothy. Here the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy about how any person who's a servant of the Lord, any follower of Jesus, should conduct himself or herself around people who don't know Jesus. And he writes this, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be 
quarrelsome, but kind, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So he's talking about how we relate to, to people who, who don't yet know Jesus. They need to come to repentance and to the knowledge of the truth. Now, what are the, the key words that describe how a Christian should behave in this passage? Let's look at those words for a moment. First of all, the Apostle Paul says, if you're the Lord's servant, you're supposed to be kind to everyone. Christians are supposed to be known as kind people. Just kind to everyone. I was at lunch a few weeks ago with Gary McGee. Gary, some of you heard him preach here. You've you're been over a year, I think, since he's preached our services. But he's the pastor at our daughter church, our church plant on the south side of Winston-Salem. And we were having uh, lunch at a restaurant over that way. And he did something that uh, I wish I'd done it first, but he, he thought of it first. I felt kind of bad that I hadn't done it. But we sat down. We are about ready to order, and the waitress came over. And I was looking at the menu, and Gary looked at the waitress and said, you know, we're about to pray in just a minute. Is there anything we can pray for you about? And she didn't say anything. And so I looked up at her, and I saw tears in her eyes. And she was all choked up, and she couldn't even speak. And when she finally did, a wonderful conversation followed. And I was so glad Gary had done that, though I felt bad I hadn't done it first. But I think what struck her more than anything was that someone seemed to care about her. Sometimes with a waiter, waitress, some of you have worked as a server at a restaurant, you know this, people walk in, they don't even look at you. They look at the menu, slam it down, tell you what they want, just wait till their food comes, as if you're not even there. But for someone to take the time to say, we're going to pray in a minute. Is there anything we can pray for you about? It's a wonderful way to open the door. Sincerely offering to pray for someone is a beautiful expression of, of kindness. That's something every one of us can do the next time we, we go out to eat somewhere. Apostle Paul said, the sermon of the Lord is not to be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. In the context of these verses, he means, I believe, able to explain the message of the gospel clearly. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, I'll refer you back to online to our January 14th message where we went through a passage of scripture and four foundational points, a way to explain the gospel. And it's in these little booklets that are at our resource center if you want one too. Able to teach, patient, patiently enduring evil, he says. That means people are rude with you, people are, are, are quarreling with you, you're patient. Correcting his opponents, he says, correcting those oppose you. How? With gentleness. Kind to everybody, able to explain the message, patient, gentle. This is the way we're to take the gospel to the world. Let's look at one other passage from 1 Peter chapter 3. The Apostle Peter writes, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it 
with gentleness and respect. What are the key words here? Well, prepared to share. Suppose this afternoon you get a phone call from an old friend that you haven't seen in some years. And your friend says to you, I know we haven't talked in a long time, but there's something I want to talk to you about. Because I know you know God. I know you're a Christian. I got a medical report last week, really bad report. And I've been given two to four months to live. And I, I feel like I've kind of ignored God in my life. And I'm scared. I'm afraid to die. Can you tell me how to know God? Can you tell me how to know God like you know God? If you got a phone call like that this afternoon, what would you say? Would you be prepared? The Bible says if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be prepared. And it's, it's not hard. It's not complicated. Be prepared. Be ready to share the gospel. Secondly, how do you do it? Do it with gentleness and do it with respect. Both these passages spoke about gentleness as a characteristic of a, a servant of God's communicating the gospel. This is how we're to go and represent Jesus in the world. What might happen this year in 2018 and the next 11 months? What might happen if every single one of us who calls River Oaks Church home began to pray this afternoon, Lord, give me one person with whom you want me to share this message this year. Just one person. Somebody you go to school with, somebody you work with, somebody in your neighborhood. And you began to pray that God would give the right opportunity for you to show kindness to them. And at the appropriate time, with gentleness and respect, God would give you the opportunity to share the message. What would happen this year if every one of us who call this church home would share with just one person? What might the impact be? What fruit might come? What might God do through that? Recently, the elders on our church session have been talking and praying about how our church can have the greatest possible impact in the next several years. How we can bear the most fruit we can possibly bear for the glory of God. We feel like God has blessed us in, in so many ways, but we feel we're called to do more, far more, in outreach and missions and ministry. And we've been praying this way, Lord, how can, we, how can we best glorify you? How can we best make disciples? We know we're called to fulfill the Great Commission, to take the gospel everywhere, to be reaching, building, sending. How can we focus so that we best glorify you and make disciples? And we think it's by building followers of Jesus who are sent to reach others. 
what we mean by this is that every follower of Jesus in our church would grow spiritually to the place where we, we see our identity as sent people. People whom Jesus has called to, to go into the world and to show the gospel and to share the gospel. To go into our schools and places of work and neighborhoods to share the love of God and the truth of God. To be his representatives in the world. Now, you may be thinking, well, I can't imagine myself ever doing that or ever getting to that place or growing that place spiritually where I, I could. So how is that going to happen in my life? What's going to happen is you pursue a growing relationship with God, as you pursue spiritual growth. And we've realized that in our church, we need a, a clear path for people who are coming into our church and asking that question, not so much a, a menu of dozens of different things to do, but a map, a pathway. And we call this our discipleship pathway. And there are really four parts to it. The first is what we're already doing today, worshiping together. I believe there is a unique way the Holy Spirit works, a dynamic way that he works when, when God's people gather together to hear his word, to worship him. When we come together, there's a, a way that he works when we, we come to worship corporately that's just not the same if I'm sitting at home watching a message online by myself, worshiping together, and then growing in a group. Further growth, I think, occurs when followers of Jesus engage with other believers in a small group setting to study, to pray. I think the best way to learn to pray, if you're not comfortable praying out loud, is by getting in a small group of people where you can just listen to a few other people pray and learn to pray by listening to them. Another step in our growth occurs when we recognize that we're called to use the gifts God's put in our lives, even if we don't know what they are yet, to serve other people. And here we try to provide those opportunities through ministry teams. But that's not enough just to come to church and grow in a group and serve on a team. Jesus has sent us to the world. And spiritual growth goes to another level when we recognize that we're called to minister to others outside of the church. The poor, the needy, the incarcerated, the unreached in missions around the world. That may mean it being involved at the Samaritan Inn or Solus Christus or Versailles Jail and Prison Ministry or doing what 17 people are doing right, have been doing last week is they're currently flying back from Kitali, Kenya. As we saw last week, though, the sufficiency for these things comes not by a lot of human planning, but by the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit and the lives of individual followers of Jesus. The Apostle Paul said it this way, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient, made us adequate as ministers of this new covenant. As we come to the end of this series this morning, I'd like to spend just a few minutes praying together for this power from God to be worked in and out in our lives. 
I'd like to do that by reflecting on some of the passages of Scripture that we have looked at over the past four weeks. On the screen, you will see a passage of Scripture followed by a prayer. So what I'd like to do is this. Uh, I'll read the, the verses aloud. And then just leave a little time for you to prayerfully reflect on those verses and how God might use the truth in those words in your own life. That you would pray them for yourself. Pray the words of those verses uh, into your own life. Pray for their application. And then after a little time, I'll lead us in praying the prayer together. So let's, let's begin with Matthew 5. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let's reflect and prayerfully consider those words for ourselves. Now I'd invite you to pray this prayer with me. Lord, help me to live for your honor in such a way that the people around me will notice the difference and be drawn to you. The Apostle Peter wrote, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. invite you to pray these words aloud with me now. Father, help me to honor Christ by my lifestyle and to be prepared to explain why I believe he is Lord. Please help me to do this with gentleness and respect. 2 Timothy 2. Verse 24 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. invite you now to pray these words together. Lord, teach me to represent you well by being kind to all people and by being patient with them. Help me to be able to share the gospel with clarity and gentleness. And one last passage. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. invite you now to pray these words. Lord, please fill me with the power of the Holy Spirit and make me your faithful witness. And now, Father, I pray that your Spirit will equip us to go in your power. I pray also, Lord, for any here who may not truly know you yet, that today the message of the gospel what you have done to reconcile us to yourself would take hold in their hearts deeply. And we pray this in the great name of the King of Kings, Jesus our Lord. Amen.